So for me, this idea of do we want to make teaching a more important value? How do we change academia? How do I even change the culture at my institution? I don't think there's a quick and easy fix. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda. And I'm Cassie Witt. Now, Cassie and I are doctoral students here at the University of Alabama, specifically in the Experimental Psychology program, where we're concentrating in social psychology. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, this is the podcast for you. Hey, Jacob, how are you doing this week? Hey, Cassie, I am doing i'm doing something i don't know exactly what i'm doing but i'm surviving if you know what right I'm <laughs> surviving not thriving right what is this this is what week three starting out what's today like a monday yeah my thing about this week of the semester is that this is the first time we've had a monday since the semester started because we started Ooh. in the middle of the week and then week two we had MLK Day on Monday, so this is the first Monday. Yeah, this is the first time we're teaching on a Monday from our Monday, Wednesday classes. Students, like, I don't know about them. That Some of them already looked a bit fatigued, but to be honest, I can't blame them. There's something about both the start and end of the semester that just feels janky. Like, it just feels like, ew, like you're either getting back into a routine or you're kind of just over the routine. Like, middle of the semester, for me, at least seems like, You've got the pattern down. It's always the beginning and the end of like, what am I doing? Who am I? Why are we all here? An existential crisis every three months. I agree. Yeah. But I also think there's something about spring semester that's just more exhausting than fall semester. Like my theory is like you come back from fall semester and you're like, hopefully rested and energized and you want to be a productive human again after the summer. (laughs) And then spring semester comes around and it's dark outside and colder than usual and you maybe didn't recover from fall semester fully so it's just more tiring true and then there's like the break where like it's a long summer break where if you spend too much time at home you're like all right I'm done with my family like I, I need to get back to my own life type of deal but yeah. like for like Christmas at least and New Year's it's like I feel like it's short enough where everything still feels new and it's just like I have these resolutions and I'm going to change the world and like school smacks you in the face and be like, now nah, welcome back. <laughs> Time to sit down and do some homework. And it's like, Hi, what about all my plans I had? Do you share with your students when you're not feeling energized? Like, are you like, oh, this week has been rough on me? Like, do you share those sorts of things? Ooh, I like this question. Um, for me, honestly, I've had mixed advice. So like sometimes I felt crappy. And originally what I would do is on the day I felt crappy, I'd be like, I would apologize almost preemptively. I'm like, hey, y'all, sorry, just to let you know, I'm not feeling the greatest. Um, and if that impacts my teaching, you know, I can always review this material. But one of my advisors in Texas, basically, she told me like, don't ever, this almost goes to like, don't ever admit weakness to your students. But like the idea of, if you never told us anything, and this is what I agree with, if you never told us you were sick, we wouldn't have known. And like, you may feel like it's really impacting your teaching, but maybe students, won't notice right and like maybe you're blowing out of proportion and I would agree with her there that it seems like even on my sick days like students were like this was the best lecture ever and in turn I'm like I had a fever of a 102 but thanks for letting me know that you know how about you Cassie do you do you let students know when you're just like "Mm, today ain't my day I'm sorry sometimes I do I think if I notice that my class is like particularly lethargic then I'm like you know I try to relate to them I'm like I'm tired today too but you know we're here we're gonna make the most of it I don't know what the best advice is honestly I think only risk that I can imagine is like they if you tell them at the very beginning like oh I'm tired this isn't going to be the best lecture then they already have the idea in their head that this isn't going to be a very good lecture so maybe don't preface it with this isn't going to be the very best lecture, but I think again, in order to humanize yourself, which is something we talked about in the, in our last episode, right? Sharing things like that with your students that you too are tired and sometimes get overwhelmed with schoolwork (laughs) can be quite relatable and effective. I like that, especially with regards to COVID. A lot of my students are just, it's someone said at the beginning of the semester, like, Hey, it's basically been two years of this. And like, for me, that's shocking because it's just like, oh my God, I've been trying to teach for two years ago. And it's like, that is exhausting. And that is a long time. And 
like not to lie some of our classroom sizes like there's a large amount of students and very tiny spaces so the fact that like Omicron's going around and it's a very tight space and it's jam-packed of students, it's just like, for me, that seems like, oh, this doesn't seem like the safest option. Um, but like everyone just seems so down there like, yes, yes, we know we need to wear masks. Yes, yeah. we know we need to speak up. Yes, we know. Honestly, I'm right there with them. Like I'm all about safety, but like that frustration of just like missing to turn around and talking to people more directly and face-to-face, like I miss that sometimes. Or like, you know, just... I got COVID, right? I've been teaching with COVID online last week and I'm doing it this week as well. And so I don't know, it is exhausting. Like one, just like being physically sick, but then like jumping around from like teaching in person to teaching hybrid to accommodate for students in your class who have COVID, but still want to come to lecture. And then you getting COVID and only being able to teach on Zoom and then going back to in-person teaching. It's, it's a lot to keep track of. Definitely. And I know it may not be the kind of main topic for today, but I still think it's an interesting topic of how do you handle, and I was kind of venting to you about this frustration, but like almost this, and I'm sure it's above and beyond our own institution, almost at every institution where it seems like administration or deans or provosts or even your fellow peers or your instructors, like it doesn't seem like anyone has a concrete plan on how to deal with so Omicron or Omicron, I can never pronounce Omicron. And it just seems like some people are like doing the extra safe option like you where they're like, I'm just going to transfer to Zoom for a bit for a few weeks or a week or two and then come back. Some people are like, I'm just okay having it hybrid. But like it seems from at least during the institutional end is you can't go online unless you, you get our permission to go online. Right. And yeah, it's just how- like as a teacher, how do you deal with that? Or like, how do you reconcile that? We're like, this might not be the safest for my students. The bureaucracy or yourself. Uh, I guess some self-care. Should we teachers? (laughs) Yeah. Teachers take care of yourself. But like that's a very tricky situation for me. Like I know. And I can't imagine, like you and I in many ways have the luxury that we live by ourselves. And you know, we don't have like a spouse or children to worry about. But like I couldn't imagine like teaching in person these giant lecture sections. And then having to worry about coming home to like a baby or something like that. And like worrying about like getting my child sick. I was meeting with one of my students today for some conferences and they were talking to me about how one of their instructors is immunocompromised Mm -hmm. and it's like terrified to teach. But because, you know, sometimes the administration's like you kind of show up in person, like they go a lot of the extra mile to try to be as safe for themselves as possible. And I'm like, for me, if I were to like give any advice to anyone facing those types of issues, I'm a fighter. I love fighting. I'm a contrarian. I would definitely talk to someone. I don't want to talk enough, but like, it seems so completely unreasonable to me to be like, you can't go online unless I give you permission to go online when there's a clear safety risk for people. And I feel like that's definitely something that can be negotiated and fought over and won. Like, you don't have to be angry. You don't have to be mad, but just being reasonable like, I can't imagine if I went to our dean or I forget who's the person we would go to in our department, but like, I can't imagine going to him and saying, hey, can I do this? I don't feel safe. And them just outright rejecting me. I think there might be a concern of I'm afraid to ask, but I think you won't get anything done unless you ask. I think the fear too is more, is larger and more salient when you are a graduate student instructor too, because we exist in this weird space where we are students, but we're also teachers. So we're not exactly employees of the university either, at least in our situation, we're not where we teach as part of like our graduate assistantship. I don't know, like, do you have certain employee rights as a grad student instructor? I don't know. That's really interesting. So I think this might be a great segue of the idea of maybe more in particular for those of you who are interested in us, who are graduate students and who are listening to this as a teacher. But today's topic, Cassie, would you like to give it away? Is all about? Sure. Yeah. We're going to be talking about how incentive systems don't reward teaching in the same way that they reward research, which is an idea that we touched on in our last episode as well. But I was hoping we could talk about it a little more in depth. And in this case or situation, I think it's interesting because as a graduate student, if we're talking about what's incentivized and what's not, and we're starting the conversation there, 
as a graduate student, you getting teaching experience, like there's some institutions that don't give any of their graduates teaching the students at all. But also, if that's what you're doing and you get assigned to a class and thrown in the deep end, what's the incentive for you to do it well or put your life at risk or like to even really care too much about what you're teaching as a graduate student? And I would argue that's not really a strong incentive besides like intrinsic motivation. Like I don't see, and I'm going to be real for you, like what is the real benefit or what's the extrinsic motivation for you and I to be as invested in our teaching there is no incentive for me to really care. So like if I didn't give an F about teaching, I don't think that would hurt my standing or help me in any way. Like it doesn't hurt, it doesn't help. It seems to have like no impact, except yeah. causing me a lot of stress and taking up a lot of my time, right? <laughs> or the grouchy right. teacher, but like, I'm not sure what do you feel like? Do you feel like as a grad student, is there any incentive to like one, try to take and teach more classes and second, to do it well? Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think we are, again, like very lucky in our program that we have that teaching of psychology class. But as part of that class, you teach a section of intro to psychology. And once you take that class and teach that one time, then you're done, right? You don't have to teach anymore. And you and I have elected to teach quite a few classes in addition to the one that we were required to teach as part of our graduation requirements. And I think one reason that I have done that personally is because I get a lot of personal fulfillment out of teaching. Like I value my role as a researcher and I love the things that I research, but the feelings that I get when I teach and the impact that I can see myself having as a teacher, is just something that I don't know, there's nothing that really compares to it for me. And that part of my identity has become incredibly important. And, you know, I may never go on to be a researcher who has like a gigantic impact on the field, but already as a graduate student teaching classes, I see myself having an impact on the lives of my students. And so that's something that just means a lot to me personally. Another reason that I think I have been kind of incentivized to teach a lot as a graduate student is because I knew that I didn't upon graduation want to work for like an R1 school. I knew that like my ideal institution was going to be like a liberal arts school or a smaller state school, but not a gigantic R1 where there was very much going to be like a publisher parish kind of mentality. And so I knew that going onto the job market for like liberal arts schools, smaller schools and things like that, I was going to have to have teaching experience because it's emphasized, I think, much more than it is necessarily at R1 schools where your research is so incredibly important. I like that you touched upon publisher parish because that's definitely going to be a reoccurring topic, especially for today when it comes to incentive systems. Kind of, can you tell me a little bit about your teaching history? So I don't think that's something we've kind of described, right, of who we are. Kind of, can you tell me what classes you've taught or even the frequency of them? of just like, what's your breath? Because I think what we do is atypical for what a typical graduate student does of they might teach intro psych, but you've definitely done more than that. Yeah, so I have taught intro to psychology three times. Um, I've taught statistics three times. Um, I've taught social psychology twice and last semester I taught a research methods lab class. So I've got quite a bit of teaching under my belt already as a graduate student. And to clarify, this isn't just like being a TA for someone else. Right. No, these are classes where I've been instructor of record. Um, I've been a teaching assistant for, I don't know how many classes, quite a few. (laughs) Yeah. You're not going to list specific numbers (laughs) and frequencies there? No. (laughs) What about you, Jacob? I've taught intro to psych as well as stats as well. I've taught stats twice. I'm not as a seasoned veteran as you, so I don't think I have as many under my belt. But other classes I've taught in at least once is like psychology of gender, sex, and sexuality. So that one was was really cool to teach because I was just like, oh, psych of gender. This is like, I never thought I got to teach this, but that's cool. Um, and currently I'm teaching IO psych, which I think I'm going to mention last episode. It may be in the future, and I was talking to you this earlier, that I might be teaching history and systems. So like teaching five types of classes, I don't know if that's normal or not, but like, it's really cool for me to expose myself Because I think maybe one of the best parts of teaching, or at least a personal intrinsic incentive to teach, is a love of learning. 
Because really, you don't get the material until you teach that oh material. My, yes, I was about to say that, especially statistics. Teaching, I'm just, I just, <laughs> I'm just teaching elementary stats, right? But I feel like I know stats so much better since I started teaching it. Because you really have to know your material well in order to teach it to your students. Hey, that's standard error about hypothetical sampling distribution <laughs> makes a whole lot more sense when you're the one who has to teach about it yeah. and actually reflect on what that means so I'm right there with you yeah like that's my go-to example like something I didn't quite get beforehand but dang I learned it I learned it by teaching it yes so intrinsic motivation level learning I feel like I learn a lot of stuff so maybe that's a selfish reason to go based on what you said, but you said that there's something special about teaching, a feeling that it's hard to describe or hard to capture with words. And I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I always like to describe it as a very cliche way of that spark or that light bulb moment. I don't, I also have a hard time describing how well that feels when something that is everyone understands is a complex topic and it's hard to first grasp. But when you use the right example, you tell the right story and you have that aha moment from the student of like, oh, I get what you're saying. I totally get this. This now makes sense. Mm -hmm. That just that brings me so much joy. And I'm just like, huzzah. Uh, I think that's something that also helped incentivize my level of teaching is definitely the lab I'm currently in, at least the immediate vibe. It seems like a lot of my peers, yourself included, Alexa included do tend to place a special interest in teaching and just like a love for the students and a love for their growth. And I think that's definitely developed my love of teaching as well. Cause I already thought like, oh, I like education, but being surrounded by people who also love education and like wanting to experiment and try new things, I think has definitely made me like, oh, give me all the classes. I want to teach all the classes. Cause I'm like you, I'm not sure R1's the right choice for me. It may or may not be, but like definitely no matter what I do, I want some teaching component in it as either the primary, at the very least as a primary component, like I don't want that to be second to anything. Yeah, definitely. And I think your comments on the lab definitely resonate with me as well. Like I feel very lucky to have been surrounded by others who really enjoy and, you know, care about creating good ped pedagogical tools. So maybe like a piece of advice for people listening, especially if you're a graduate student, is to seek out those kinds of relationships, right? Jacob, you and I, I mean, obviously we started a podcast about teaching because they like it so much. But even before this, you know, we would have conversations rather frequently, I would say about like the best approach in a class or like trying something new, like ungrading or flip classes or what the best textbook is or how to deal with this particular student issue. We spend a lot of time thinking about how best to approach our classes. And so finding people who also care about that, right, whether it be like your own advisor or like other faculty in your department or really other graduate students, I think it's, it's incredibly important to find that group of people that you feel like you can turn to. Definitely. And if I can add on to that, I like the idea of like giving maybe some more pragmatic advice of that, of like looking nearby, but I would say for those of you who are interested and you're like, oh, my, my immediate community isn't as, it's more research heavy than teaching heavy, but you do know, like you want to be around people or to have like-minded people around teaching. I would definitely say check out like teaching of psychology or the TOP website. Definitely. Um, I think there's even the society, uh, the acronyms like STP, the mm -hmm. Society for Teaching of Psychology. There are community boards out there. There are conferences out there that I've always been joining and even like reading articles about where it's really cool to see how people are trying to improve their pedagogy. I'm not going to say everything that comes out there is the best idea ever, but the fact that people are just throwing creative ideas and saying this might be a cool thing what do you think and refining those that process is beautiful like i learned up stuff and picked up stuff of how i teach stats and resources from there because of those communities and i'm like these people are so clever i'm gonna steal all their ideas so it's just like i found a lot of inspiration um on twitter right like academic twitter Ooh, because i write on that for people who may or may not know especially i would think more faculty are on academic Twitter, but more graduate students are starting to jump on more like the younger folk. I'm personally not very active on, on Twitter, at least in terms of posting. I definitely read other people's posts. Um, I'm a scroller. Is but that the name? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. But there are all sorts of like hashtags you can search, right? I, and I think like 
the Society for the Teaching of Psychology, like they have a Twitter page and, you know, they'll retweet people and uh, you can find all sorts of different threads that way, which is something that I do. Definitely a plug I want to give of, because I'm sure eventually we're going to be talking about like open science and stuff like that and how even how to teach about open science Mm -hmm. and pedagogy there is that there's this resource out there for anyone who wants like articles or even like ideas or blog posts or podcasts called FORT. Um, And I think the acronym is the Framework of Open and Reproducible Research Training. So Mm -hmm. F-O-R-R-T. They have a Twitter, they have a website, but essentially like it's this database with over a hundred plus articles categorized on like how to teach open science and activities and discussions you can have. So just wanted to throw that like resource out there for those of you who may want to look into that, but that could be a separate episode. Yeah, that's a helpful, it's a helpful plug though. (laughs) Helpful plug, give give them some shenzhen because there are attempts to make teaching easier for all. All right, so we just kind of said, hey, our main motivations are intrinsic, love of learning, caring for the students. Why do you think that there aren't as many extrinsic motivations? Or it seems to me, and this might be a perception, that teaching is almost viewed as a lesser ability or like it's just less than than your typical research is it because of grant pursuing and grant funding and they bring in the money is it the like why do you think like most people are like yeah get that teaching yeah let's evaluate you on your teaching let's do that and actually have those evaluations matter because I know so many brilliant researchers who by their accounts get terrible teaching evals and they're just like, I'm not worried. I bring in the money. And it's just like, it's almost like teaching's an afterthought. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, why is it seen as less than? I mean, I agree, right? We talked. But teaching is less than? No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, teachers yeah. suck. <laughs> no, I, I do just, I get the vibe that teaching in academia isn't viewed as like being a skill on the same caliber as research. Um, And I think your point that like, maybe it is about not bringing in the money, but I don't know, like teaching and advising, like, right, like those activities, mentoring is just so vital to students. Teaching someone how to do research is important and like teaching students how to evaluate research is important. I don't know. I'm just incredibly frustrated. I can't find the words. <laughs> yeah, you sound so sweet and kind. I know. Behind my uh, eyes, there's a fire. Well, actually, no, I'm glad that this isn't a visual medium. If they saw your eyes <laughs> twitching going on right there, I'm like, sound calm, but your eyes say a lot. I would say it's almost an injustice, right? So what I mean by that is that our one institution, prestigious, prestigious research institutions have world authority figures on the topic. So like, for example, my undergrad was from University of California, Riverside, and we had Sonia Lubomirsky. If you don't know that name, she is like the happiness queen. Like that is her thing. She's wrote in everything about happiness. She's a world figure world-leading figure and so like wow come to UCR get these R1 world-leading figures to teach your courses but little do people know like if you bring in the grants a lot of what professors do is that they get a payout of their classes so like if you're a world-leading figure you're actually probably not going to be in front of the classroom right. and you're not going to be your instructor and it almost seems just like universities and market that we have like the biggest and brightest and most brilliant people, but we definitely don't have those people teach you. I think sometimes that in the worst case scenario, and to me, what's most disappointing is if that person does teach a class because they're so used to doing research and they've had so little practice in teaching, it's almost like a disservice or a letdown of like, they're either talking at way too advanced level where I don't understand what's going on. And a lot of students don't know what's going on. Yeah. But like, that's what we're charging students for. It's like, we're charging a lot of money because this is an R1 and it's prestigious. Right. But by the very fact of making it prestigious and charging so much money, you're not getting access to a quality education. Like to me, that's an injustice. I'm not sure if that makes any sense, but like, it's almost a catch 22 of like, you're paying good money for high quality people, but because they're high quality people, they're too busy to actually deal with you and teach. Yeah. And that's something I've heard about a lot of, I guess, like superstars in research that they obviously like don't have 
a lot of the time or energy to really devote to their students. So definitely. So we were talking about how teaching is viewed as a lesser ability or lesser skill. I think a good follow-up question for you. I'd be interested in your initial thoughts. And again, it's not like you and I are scripted, right? So it's just like, I'm popping up these questions around me. You're like, ah, what (laughs) is he asking now? What can be done to increase the value, right? So like, if it is seen as less than, what ways can teachers, what ways can academics, what ways that you and I, what can we do to get more people to value the skill of teaching? Or is there anything we can do at the individual level? I think having conversations about the importance of teaching is like just generally like something that needs to happen. But I also think that graduate training needs to emphasize teaching more, especially if many of your graduates are going on to like seek positions in academia where they will inevitably be teaching. So again, like we had a class teaching of psychology, but it's pretty rare. And even then, right, you only have to teach one class and that's all of the professional development that you really get when you're a graduate student. So I think just during graduate training, giving more opportunities to develop teaching skills And I guess just emphasizing that that's going to be part of your job and that it's an important part of your job and, you know, giving graduate students the opportunity to be an instructor of record and to mentor graduates, undergraduate students is just incredibly important. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I, I'm going to try to look for this study and see if I can maybe cite it in the show notes, but it might've been published in like a TOP article, but they asked undergraduate students of like, can you tell us like the difference or in the prestige between like an assistant professor, associate professor, adjunct professor? Mm-hmm. And students don't know anything from left to right when it comes because that's just not their thing. They're like, well, these are all professors. These are all an exalted position lifted up. Yeah. I think they ask those same questions of higher academics of grad students and older. And there was like a clear hierarchy of this person is better than this person. This person is more skilled than this person. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the case, right? So like if you're an adjunct versus if you're an associate versus if you're something else, right? It seems like if you're maybe a teaching focused professor versus you're a more research focused professor, teaching professors, if I recall correctly, are always ranked a bit lower on skill. And so like there almost seems like if you're a researcher, you're more intelligent you're more, I don't know. It's just like a difference. And it's like, Which um, I, do, I don't believe. Right. So it's right. like, where did this, where did this come from? where did this myth come from that like teaching faculty aren't as intelligent or shouldn't be as valued. And for me, I think it has to come. It doesn't come from undergrad though. Like I said, I think yeah. it has to start at the graduate school level. If that's what we're starting to see these rankings kind of disperse of like, it's learn there yeah, when you're it's older. Something, yeah, it's something you're taught. Yeah, I distinctly remember like when I was an undergraduate student, I was probably like a junior and I, I maybe this is because I was a first generation college student, but like I didn't know the difference between like assistant or associate or adjunct or anything like that. I didn't even know what the difference between an undergraduate and a graduate student is. I'm going to be perfectly <laughs> honest. I'm like, aren't we all students? Okay, so one thought that I've had is like one reason like maybe people don't pursue teaching opportunities as much or like care about them as much is because I think universities often create a lot of barriers to the authentic teaching that is so fulfilling. So I'm thinking about how at larger schools like R1 schools, big SEC schools, you often have to teach giant lecture classes right? So like teaching classes that are as big as like 250 students, 300 students, where it's pretty much impossible to get to know all of them on an individual, like a personal level over the course of a semester. And I think part of the reason that teaching is so fulfilling is that you get to cultivate relationships with your students, right? But you you can't do that as effectively when you have to teach these giant classes. But often at at schools, there's only one section of a class that's offered a semester. So it has to be a big one. And so you're kind of forced into into that role. So I'm thinking about an experience I had where I taught social psychology for the first time in a spring semester where I think I had like around 150 students. So it was a gigantic class and I enjoyed the class a lot. 
but I was pretty discouraged throughout the whole course. Well, when I was teaching it as an online class, like it was during the height of COVID, when people still cared about COVID. And so it was all on Zoom. I had like all of these students and I felt so disconnected from them. I taught social psychology this past summer with a small class of 20 students. And suddenly it became my favorite class in the world to teach right? Like I took them all out for pizza. They were like emailing me like memes and TikToks at night. Like we, we became friends. Like I've written a couple letters of recommendation for students in this class. Like it was just such a wonderful experience. And I think part of the reason that it was is because it was small and I got to connect with all of them and we had such good discussions, right? I think in large classes, students are often too nervous to talk because they're like, I don't want to talk in front of like 199 of my peers or so. When it's a smaller number, right? Everybody just is a little more relaxed. No, I like that. So it's almost a point that larger classrooms are de-incentivized the connecting with your students, right? Yeah. Because I don't want to say it's impossible to connect with your students. But right. I think you're absolutely right. Connecting with 300, like mm. to say that that doesn't matter or like or that doesn't hinder those types of abilities to even connect superficially with students. Like it obviously does, right? So I like the idea of, and that kind of goes into like, hey, you know, larger classrooms, why don't we have smaller, more dedicated classrooms? Like that's an interesting question that I feel like a lot of admin are like, money. Um, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think larger classes too make it more difficult or intimidating to try something different. The first time I ever did ungrading in a class was with my small social class where I had 20 students. That I didn't find too intimidating, but I'm doing it this semester with a class of 85 students. And I was kind of scared with a larger class to, to do that kind of approach. I don't know if that's been your experience. Like, do you feel like your larger classes, like you're more scared to like try something that's like different from what students typically expect? Yes. Cause like things that work in a small classroom can be done in a larger classroom but they have to be adapted mm -hmm. right and so like I might like think pair share activities where students discuss and that's easy for a classroom of 20 30 if you have 100 students having 50 pairs and then having them shout and share the whole classroom like there's something that just feels harder about that like you could try to make it work but there's a distinct obstacle almost I'm not sure if that makes sense which just yeah. it feels harder and it feels harder to get students to commit to it because now that they're not just a part of 20 people but they're a part of a crowd of 100 I feel like it's easier just to anonymize yourself right and be like Definitely. even if I don't participate this no one's going to notice me my instructor's not going to notice me and those students aren't necessarily wrong it is to hard hard to notice like if an individual person is just kind of like not paying attention, especially in the class of 100 faces that are all staring at you. It's like, well, it's hard to keep track of. I don't know. In line with this idea that in larger classes, it's sometimes hard or I guess more challenging to do something that's like different or innovative. I also find that incredibly frustrating because a lot of the times we have been asked to teach large classes. And I feel like being innovative in your teaching isn't really rewarded the same way that innovative research is rewarded. Ooh, innovative teaching versus innovative research. Yeah. You know, like if you're an innovative researcher, right, that usually ends up in, in some publications. But I feel like when you're an innovative teacher and you're like willing to like break the mold and like try something kind of out there, again, like ungrading, I feel like especially people who are like further on in their career and have been like teaching for a while, they're like, oh God, you're doing this really different thing. Like, I don't know how I, I feel about it. And whereas like if you were doing something really different in your research that was incredibly novel, I feel like you'd get a response that was like, oh, good for you. You know, I don't know. I feel like, see, I feel like you get that pushback from our peers or fellow graduate students and even to a certain extent pushback from undergrads initially. Yeah. Like there's a huger, more systemic way of like, we've taught grading for so for a certain way for so long of what it means to be a student and what a, how important this grade is. The point I wanted to bring and kind of touching back to the incentive system, because I know like ungrading is going to be its own thing. 
in IO psychology, there's something called, I believe, Lewin's change model. Yeah, Dee, are you familiar with this? Yes. For those of you who don't know, it's this idea of changing a culture is hard. And let me say that again. It's like incredibly, monumentously hard. Like if you're bringing in an IO consultant saying, fix my business, fix it to make people care, change our values, and the IO consultant does and maybe tries to do some survey work and tries to make these attempted changes, even if they're effective for a month or two or three, it's like a rubber band effect of like, nope, an organization, a foundation has been built on these traditional values and they're gonna go back to it. So what Lewin's kind of three-stage change model says is to, in order to enact real change, you have to go through the first step of, he kind of almost like is it's an ice cube of, first you have to recognize the organizational values. So acknowledge what they are and what they care about. And they go through an unfreezing stage. So you start tapping, right? You start having conversations. You're saying, why do we have this? Why do we value that? Why don't we care about something we should care about? In this case, teaching. And you start thawing out those cultural values. And when you can get everyone to start questioning, committing things, um, the second stage is the idea of actual change. So you're starting to replace values, starting to replace what's most important and what's not most important. And so in this case, in a teaching context, like once you already have many conversations, and again, that can even take up to a year to thaw out, even longer sometimes, especially if it's an older organization, and then actually saying, what are we going to change? And let's agree to change and let's commit to change and getting everyone to onboard. The third part is the hardest and what most people fail at is then you have to refreeze and you're now trying to refreeze your new values into the model. The things that you attempted to change when things thaw out, you then have to be diligent at and reinforce. So for me, this idea of, oh, do we want to make teaching a more important value? How do we change academia? How do I even change the culture at my institution? I don't think there's a quick and easy fix. You mentioned earlier, Cassie, that one of the things we have to do is hold conversations with one another. And I think that's the perfect first step of, what are our current values now? If I care about teaching and it's not currently being prioritized now, who are these people? Who can I have ongoing conversations with that kind of just chip at wake and start thawing out that? So when you can get to the second stage and have that really big meeting and get everyone on board, those conversations can happen. Um, so that's what I would say. It's a very slow process. You might feel like you're alone out there trying to make teaching count, or maybe you tried to like demand change and then nothing happened. Or you tried to start a teaching club and like everyone attended the first week and then nobody showed up for the second week and you're like, I'm disappointed. <laughs> nobody cares. Are I we promise from personal nice. experience? <laughs> start sobbing. I'm just like, yeah. It's like, it takes time, right? And like, it it's so easy to get demotivated. Yeah, burnt yeah. out, demotivated, disenfranchised really. Yeah. Um, but do know that there are people like you who do care about teaching. Cassie and I are right there along with you whispering in your ear, you got this. Yeah, we care. We want to support you. We want to have conversations with you. We want to have conversations for you. Reach out to us. We'll talk. We'll send some words of encouragement. Yeah. Um, we can, you can, can send us encouragement. You can send us encouragement as we yell into the void. Yeah. Um, but that would probably be my most pragmatic advice is just patience. I know it's not the easiest thing to hear. I know we would rather have change right now. Um, unfortunately, it just seems like the world's a bit more complicated than that of getting what we want and getting it now. Do you ever get extra disenfranchised though as like someone who really cares about teaching when it's not incentivized as much and also being someone who really cares about open science and you know, reproducibility and those sorts of things, right? Where it's like, oh God, I have to be so patient and wait for so much to change about academia. Okay, can you restate your question more concisely? So this is basically trying to make an open science cultural change and a teaching cultural change. <laughs> yes, just- do you ever get, do you, I, I know you feel really tired. I feel really tired. <laughs> you don't know me. You don't know my life. I think you know me well. You, you know I can get tired and you know I can get frustrated, right? Uh, and I, I believe you do as well, right? I'm almost certain of it. I almost liken it to diversity advocates or civil rights movements types of things. Yeah. Of there are issues that we're dealing with that involve the Asian American community, Pacific Islander, the Black community, the Latino community, the LGBT community. 
And when I talk to activists, it almost feels like you can't, it's not possible to care about everything or at least be equally invested in everything. And so what I like is like, you can't burn yourself out on this motivational change. Like you're going to have to pick some to prioritize and you're going to have to trust your peers to kind of care about the rest. Like you'd still be invested. You can still learn about it. But for me personally, like you can't care about everything as deeply. Um, so I might get burned out, and but I feel like the two topics that you mentioned are definitely two that I am heavily invested in. This mm-hmm. idea of I want people to care about teaching more, actually being thoughtful for their students, making sure their students actually learn to have those aha moments. And also, I think it's just good for you personally. But also on the researcher end of things and the open science movement, we now know there are better ways to do research practices. There are ways where we can avoid hacking our data. And like, I want to do those things on both ends, right? Now that might come at a cost of certain social issues where like, oh, I can't keep track of all of it. Mm-hmm. But like, I can still care about those things. It's just going to be, I'm going to rely on my peers, right? Because if we want to talk about issues in academia and you and I can talk about this DEI issues, right? Oh, and maybe, God, yeah. right? That's not only just, we can talk about it from a teaching lens of like, why don't we teach about more diversity, equitable inclusion type stuff for those of you who don't know what DEI is. So like more diversity-based stuff, like that's an issue with just teaching at the college level that most classes don't incorporate diverse perspectives or people of color, but it's also a larger issue at like at the administration level or how we treat our graduate students or how we treat faculty of color. Like you and I, like we, we try to do so much, but like it gets to a point where like teaching is our bubble and we can at least speak to that at the very least. Yeah. Um, but I do know, like you and I both know some amazing graduate students who are vocal about change in the department, right? Yeah. And it's not that you and I don't care. And again, I hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm making excuses for ourselves or not, but like it's a team effort and we each have our part to play to kind of chip away at issues. Yeah. And I think you and I are trying our best to do on our little end of the world, right? That at least we're trying to do something and not giving up completely. Yeah. I like that, Jacob. For someone who's usually very cynical, that was skeptic, not cynical. <laughs> There are no real effects. Uh, didn't you say that once? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. All right, I have a question for you, Cassie. Um, and this is maybe speaking to your personal experience. So, you know, during your kind of final year at UA, you got a position you really wanted, and it was like a graduate teaching fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talked a little bit about this during our last episode, right? But this is idea where you get to go to your peers, to like new up and coming graduate students, and even faculty enrolled, and there's a portion of it where, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like you got to hold teaching workshops, right? So like these teaching development pieces. I wasn't sure if that was tied to your fellowship per se or not, but I know you were invited to like give these teaching development um, workshops. Is that correct? Yeah. So the Graduate Teaching Fellows Program has been around at UA for a while, But essentially in the past, it's just been you hold like one kind of workshop together in the summer for new graduate teaching assistants, where you basically just force them to give a little presentation, like a three minute presentation, and then you give them some feedback on it, right? So the idea is that they get a little bit of experience talking in front of people before the semester starts and suddenly they're like a TA and might have to talk to students or classes or whatever. Which is kind of cute if you think about it. Give yeah. a three-minute spiel. Okay, yeah. you're ready. Let's go. Right. But obviously giving one three-minute spiel and, you know, they listen to like a few speakers and things like that. But it's not it's not really enough to prepare you for what it is to actually teach a class. And so this year, the director of the fellows program, who's absolutely wonderful, Dr. Andre Denham here at UA, was like, maybe we should give professional development opportunities for teaching consistently to our graduate students, because that's one of like our goals, right? We want to we want you to have training in research, but also teaching. Um, And so over the course of last semester, the teaching fellows um, with Dr. Denham organized several professional development workshops. So like I got to be a part of designing and leading one about 
in class activity, engaging in class activities. Um, and I got to give like a how-to on like how to design and run a flipped classroom. Um, so my question for you has to deal with motivation and almost sometimes being discouraged. Okay. I forget which, but I think one of your workshops, you had like very low attendance, right? If I'm correct, or like very few people showed up and you had like this whole presentation ready to go. You had a bunch of enthusiasm to like work and have these large group discussions. And it almost seemed like, well, nobody came. Yeah, some of the- How do you deal with that? Or like how, because it was supposed to be like, this is for people who really care. This is something to really educate people on and be passionate about. And it almost felt like a disappointment or let down when you're just like, yeah, no yeah, one. Yeah, I think we had like something planned for the end of the semester that only like three graduate students registered for or something. And this is campus-wide, right? Right, yeah, it's for all graduate students. Um, obviously not the best, you know, when people don't attend, but just because you have low attendance doesn't mean that the people who are there are like low quality or anything like that. And they can certainly learn something from you. And I guess what change starts at the personal level, it starts small. So even if there are a small number of attendees at your teaching workshops, right, even if there is just a small number of listeners for our podcast, I feel like we are trying to do something to create better teachers and to inspire people to care about their teaching and to become better instructors. I think it still matters. And that's what I tell myself. That's how I sleep at night. Yeah, that's how I sleep We don't have to include any grants that we don't, but I wasn't sure because I feel like I would be discouraged as well or like this idea that I'm trying to do something and it almost was like, it's very it's very similar to like what happens when not many students show up to class yeah and it's like I'm trying out here man I'm putting I'm putting my 100 I'm yeah I'm working real hard for y'all feels that way though which is like I really am trying and it's like work with me yeah help me help you please um I did think of one more idea before we close off this episode though all right, so Cassie, I want to run an idea by you. Go Here's my idea. So we don't really call them brown bags here at our institution, but they're basically the brown bag equivalent, right? We call them contemporary issues or CIs, or maybe yet whoever's here in this institution calls them like seminar type sessions. But it's when all the faculty and all the graduate students within a certain concentration get together and they either listen to a guest speaker or listen to one of the members give some sort of talk, right? And some sort of discussion on a weekly, maybe for us, it's a weekly basis, but maybe for some people, it's every two weeks, right? And at least to my understanding, it's predominantly based on research talks. It's always based on what your research, what are you getting published, right? What were your hypotheses, methods, results, all that jazz. Very rarely, although I think both you and I, and to a certain extent, even our mentor Alexa, have been pushing more teaching topics for those seminar sessions. So less about presenting empirical data that we know we're doing some research on, but more so uh, providing think pieces or opinion pieces, or maybe an empirical article, but that's from like teaching of psychology and saying like, hey, this is really questioning what's effective for student teaching, what we should be prioritizing, um, and what should we care. Do you think that brown bags or seminars are maybe one entry point? And I'm just having this idea now of like maybe something you and I kind of do informally without thinking too like we're not the deepest of thinkers when we're doing something we just kind of just do. But like, do you think that might be a starting point for some people is like, if there's a free week on brown bag and nobody knows what to present, like, hey, let's talk about Susan Bloom's work. Or, hey, let's talk about this article that we found from T.O.P. Or I feel like that might be one way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you and I, we always, we have to do our required like research talk in our brown bag. But there are weeks where there isn't a student who's like slotted to present something. And so we have the opportunity. It's kind of like, does anybody want to talk about anything? And we are very good at bringing up teaching topics. So I think, yeah, just giving people an opportunity or like space to get exposed to content related to to teaching. So this year I am the 
vice president of experimental psychology on our psychology graduate student association. And so as part of that role, I'm supposed to coordinate two brown bag talks for the department. And one thing that I did, right, I think people just assume it's supposed to be research talks, right? They've always been research talks in the past. But one of the guest speakers that I have is going to talk about ungrading. (laughs) I'm just like, I want people in the department to hear about this from like an expert, somebody who's been doing this a while and has like a lot of experience and I think some data to talk about with it. I think that would be so beneficial. So yeah, I think that's- And that's an email I saw, again, just off the podcast record, but like, I think that was so cool when I saw who you got over, like it was from like Cindy and it's just like, I got so-and-so. I think one of them was like from Kentucky, you know, and I'm just like, all right, cool. And I think you even got someone in-house from UA. Yep, I I did. See, I I read the emails sometimes. Good. So to sum up our talk today, our discussion today, Jacob, what's what's your biggest takeaway? If I were to sum up our talk in one term, like originally I think you and I have kind of talked about like incentive systems more deeply and maybe talking about like publish or perish, right? Right. So first thing I want to say is I don't think we really got to deep dive into more the academic publish or perish and we definitely can in the future. But I do think what we discussed today was just as important And this is the idea that if a lot of our passion for teaching is more intrinsically motivated, we really try to discuss ways how to keep that internal flame ablaze of how to try to build community, of how to try to be patient, right? Like, and again, everything we're saying might sound like superficial at face value, but this is really the work that needs to be put in. It's like slow, arduous, I think is the right word work. It's just like, it Mm -hmm. takes time. It takes change to unfreeze change and then freeze again. And I think what you and I tried hammering in, it's just that there is, there are people like you, I, and our listeners out there who feel like maybe we owe something more to our higher education students. Maybe we owe something, like they deserve more. Like if we're the package that's being sold of the product of higher ed, we need to do more to deliver on our end. And there are both reasons that benefit ourselves, but also benefit our students. I think one of the biggest takeaways is that what we're doing to keep that internal motivation ablaze is hard work and it takes patience, but by cultivating a community, by doing little things, right? And also just self-care, taking care of yourself, number one, as always, and being patient with yourself, patient with your students, patient with your department, patient with your campus, change will come. It has to. Yeah, I think that's a really nice closing note. I think probably my biggest takeaway is just reflecting on the relationship between like research and and teaching, right? And how they aren't always seen as comparable to one another. Um, I guess it's just don't let people tell you that teaching is lesser than, right? Or that that it isn't so that it isn't as important because I don't think that that is, is the case and finding a community of people that you can turn to who, who feel similarly, right. Is something that you, you should do for yourself. And on we that note, to see y'all next time and yeah. it's time to play the outro cast. All right. Bye everyone. Bye-bye. Hello, hello again. We just wanted to thank you one more time for listening to Two Random Weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi-weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. Or feel free to email us at CorruptingTheYouthPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye.